My friends, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the words that Jesus uses today after, after his time in the desert, his time doing battle with the evil one, confronting temptation and Satan himself, rebuking him, and coming back to mankind. He preaches a message of good news, but good news that requires a response. We, all of us, have encountered this at least in some degree. Hopefully, I mean, if you're here at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning when it's this cold outside, you know something about the gospel message that Jesus preaches. In the second reading today from St. Peter, he says, Beloved, Christ suffered for sins once. Once he suffered for sins. Why? The righteous, that's him, for the sake of the unrighteous, that's you and me. He suffered for us that he might lead you to God. He suffered the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous so that he might lead you to God to God. This is his great desire. We learn something from this. We learn a priority, his and ours. What is preeminent? Being with God. That's the reason he suffered. He wants to lead you there. And like a child who went a little bit too far from home, doesn't really know how to get back again, we require someone to lead us. And so he does. He comes in. He suffers so that he can lead us back to God. As I said, it gives us a priority, but it also communicates that he wants you with him. This is a point of emphasis. God is saying, yes, thank you. He wants you with him. When he looks at you, he sees you and he sees someone good. He looks at you and says, oh, yes, good. Come home. Come be with me. He desires you. He made you. And he wants you. That's important. But as I said, just as in the beginning Jesus came preaching a message of good news, and it's good news that we're wanted by God. That's good news. You can feel a little bit like, oh, really? Good. Yes. Good news. Just as in the beginning Jesus came preaching good news from God, he awaited a response. And so to now we who hear this news... A response is required from us. What will we do about it? This is the question. What will we do about this? And we ought to do something about it. Last week uh, on Wednesday, during Ash Wednesday over at St. Mary's, I shared with everyone there 
a little excerpt from a sermon written by one of our great saints, St. John Henry Newman. Newman is one of the the all-time, I mean, if there were a Mount Rushmore of preachers in the Catholic Church, he'd be up there. he was known as, as someone whose words convicted to the heart that evoked emotional responses, though he was known as someone who was a little bit monotone as a speaker himself. It was the quality and content of his message that provoked something out. And I want to share with you one of his sermons again today, uh, just a, a portion of it, because he speaks to the response we ought to give And I think it's important for us to weigh and to measure as we plan to give it. He preaches on a particular passage from Matthew's Gospel. Perhaps you remember the scene where James and John approach Jesus and say, Master, grant that we may sit one at your right and one at your left when you sit on your throne in glory. And he sort of lets that request bounce around in his head. This is what he says. These words of the holy apostles, James and John, were part of a conversation that evoked a very solemn question addressed to them by their divine master. They coveted with a noble ambition, though as yet unpracticed in the highest wisdom, untaught in the holiest truth, They coveted to sit beside him on his throne of glory. They would be content with nothing short of that special gift which he had come to grant to his elect, which he shortly after died to purchase for them, and which he offers to us. They ask the gift of eternal life, and he, in answer, told them not that they should have it, though for them it was really reserved, but he reminded them what they must venture for it. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, we are able. Here then a great lesson is impressed upon us, that our duty as Christians lies in this, in making ventures for eternal life without the absolute certainty of success. Success and reward everlasting they will have who persevere unto the end. Doubt we cannot that the ventures of all Christ's servants must be returned to them at the last day with abundant increase. This is a true saying. He returns far more than we lend to him, and without fail. But I am speaking of individuals, of ourselves, one by one. No one among us knows for certain that he himself will persevere. Yet everyone among us, to give himself even a chance of success at all, must make a venture. As regards individuals, then, it is quite true that all of us must for certain make ventures for heaven, yet without the certainty of success through them. This, indeed, is the very meaning of the word venture, for that is a strange venture which has nothing in it of fear, risk, danger, anxiety, uncertainty. 
Yet so it certainly is. And in this consists the excellence and nobleness of faith. This is the very reason why faith is singled out from other graces and honored as the special means of our justification. Because, hear him now, listen. Because the presence of faith, if you have faith, if you, you are a faithful person, the presence of faith implies that we have the heart to make a venture. If you're a, a person of faith, that's a symptom leading to a greater unearthing inside of you. You have a, a heart that is bold, that's courageous. You have a heart that can make a venture and that's longing to, that's waiting to, that's saying, let me, Adam, give me a chance. The presence of faith implies that we have a heart to make a venture. But Newman worries. In spite of this, may it not be seriously questioned whether men in general, even those of the better sort, venture anything at all upon his promise? Consider for an instant, let everyone who hears ask himself the question, what stake has he in the truth of Christ's promise? How would he be a whit the worse off, supposing, which is impossible, but supposing it to fail? We know what it is to have a stake in any venture of this world. We venture our property in plans which promise a return, in plans which we trust, which we have faith in. What if we ventured for Christ? What if we given to him on a belief of his promise? The Apostle Paul said that he and his brethren would be of all men the most miserable if the dead were not raised. Can we in any degree apply this to ourselves? We think perhaps at present we have some hope of heaven. Well, this we would lose, of course. But after all, how should we be worse off as to our present condition? A trader who has embarked some property in a speculation which fails not only loses his prospect of gain, but something of his own, which he ventured in hope of the gain. This is the question. What have we ventured? Perhaps you can take this question and you can modify it a little bit, make it modernize it a little bit, make it new. How would your life be different if tomorrow morning you turned on the news and the headline across the board, God forbid, would be something to the effect of, it has been scientifically and historically proven that Jesus is a myth and that life ends at death. What would you change about your life? How would you look back at your life and say, oh man, I was getting it so wrong. I'm, I'm embarrassed. I was doing X. I was giving my time to Y. Ask that question because if you can answer that, then those are the things, X and Y, that right now you're, you're doing because of Jesus. 
those are the things that you're doing in faith, in, in, in hope of the promise that he's given. And he has promised much. And those are the things that right now you are using to respond, to respond to his good news. Newman again worries. He says, I really fear when we come to examine it, it'll be found that there is nothing we resolve, nothing we do, nothing we do not do, nothing we avoid, nothing we choose, nothing we give up, nothing we pursue, which we should not resolve and do and not do and avoid and choose and give up and pursue if Christ had not died and heaven were not promised us. I read this sermon for the first time when I was a young man at 23. Now I am old at 31. But when I first read this sermon, it punched me in the gut because I asked those questions. I asked, how is my life different because of Christ? What am I doing now that I wouldn't do if Christ were not true? And I thought to myself, oh no, my life would look pretty much exactly the same right now. Maybe I wouldn't go to church quite as often, but I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get ready for my professional career, I'd study to make myself useful. I would work for people that I cared about. I would go about maintaining some sort of social contract so that people wouldn't hurt me and I wouldn't hurt them. I'd come home. I'd have my microwavable dinner. I'd watch TV and I'd go to sleep. And none of that would be for Christ. <laughs> my brothers and sisters, Christ comes preaching good news. He suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead us to God because God's promise is sure. It is true. And it's good news. He desires you. He wants you for himself and he wants to bring you back there. He comes out of the wilderness, out of contest with Satan, conquering. He preaches good news, and now it's incumbent upon us to give a response. What will we venture? How will our lives be different today, this Lent, because Jesus came and did something new? The ball's in our courts, brothers and sisters. Be bold and venture bravely. Amen.